Just a week or so ago, Cass told me that uh, my grandson, Gates, his son, asked his daddy, why do bad things happen to people? I don't know if he added good people, as it's often worded, uh, but don't you wish you could have heard Kaz's response, because don't we all wonder why? And this question is asked, and it's asked often in a lot of different ways, and it's asked with seriousness by philosophers, and it's asked by all of us who are troubled by the world. Why do innocent people suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? And even then more pointed to God, how do we understand a God that allows such suffering and pain and injustice? Or maybe put, as I watched a podcast not too long ago, as a man who is an atheist went on a rant about Christianity, about, about theism, about the whole idea of God. How do we understand a God that allows children to die of nasty cancer? Well, you know what? That question is as old as the Bible itself. It's called the Job equation. The jo- Job, the book of Job, is probably our oldest text in the Scripture. It was asking that question. We see it again in the Psalms, in Psalm 73. The psalmist trying to understand. I try to do right, and life goes wrong. And these people don't even care about doing right, and their life seems to be going so well. The point of view that we have so often is that shouldn't have happened to them. And God is put on the judgment stand. If God is, a, is good, then He certainly isn't very powerful. And if He's powerful, then He certainly isn't good But by my estimation of the world, many will say, how can he possibly be both? Well, Jesus is asked a question in one of these discussions with this group of people on the way to Jerusalem. And some, the story is told, and they told Jesus this story, that some people were making... uh, their way from Galilee to Jerusalem for a festival, for a sacred time in the temple area, only to somehow trigger the brutality of a maniac named Pilate who murders some of the worshipers, mixing their blood with their sacrifice in an act of vicious brutality Maybe one could call it state-sanctioned perversity. Well, think about it for just a minute. The Galileans, just like Jesus was a Galilean, were at worship. Imagine traveling to a conference. Steve mentioned going to a conference a few weeks back. He went to one down in Dallas. And there's energy and there's excitement and it's one of those times when you are looking for renewal and you feel alive with God and faith and hope. And there in worship you get mown down. People are murdered. John Piper said it this way, it's as though some anarchist 
would break into our church this morning during the Lord's Supper, cut the neck of a few worshipers, pour their blood into the communion cups. It was a horrible thing that Pilate did. And our reaction would be one of shock and moral outrage. Well, before the crowd could get worked up about this again, because certainly they would have been, Jesus brings up another disaster. And this one seems to be a fluke of nature. And he references people in Jerusalem, this time not Galilee, in a catastrophe that is a random accident, not one that seems to have a moral agent behind it. And, and so 18 and all die when this tower falls over on some folks. So in one instance, there is a moral issue. In one instance, the one Jesus brings up, it is a natural disaster or a natural issue. But here's the implicit in question embedded in all of this. Did people get what they deserve? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Or how can God allow bad things or horrible things to happen? And most of us believe that if we are good, good will happen, and if we're bad, bad will happen, and the bad things happen to someone, they are more likely to be because of their own agency, their own reasons. Well, how does Jesus answer? I guess that's what we all want to know, right? Well, he doesn't try to defend God against mismanaging the world. He answers in verse 3, or verse 2, let's just go ahead and look at that text first. He says, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? And Jesus asked, is that why they suffered? And then in verse 4, he says this, and what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners in Jerusalem? So he, he asked questions rather than giving answers. And in both cases, Jesus' point, I believe, was not that the victims were innocent. That's not the point. His point is they were simply not more guilty than the others. And I believe there's a distinction there. The fundamental premise is that we're all guilty. And Jesus isn't about ranking guilt according to these situations that have happened. He doesn't equate tragedy as so people so from most of human history have with punishment. Sometimes things just happen, but all are guilty. And then Jesus bypasses, and this is interesting too, any commentary on the social issues of the day. I don't know if he would have done that in every context or in every situation, but certainly here he bypasses an answer in that way. And he uses the event to move the conversation from out there to in here. from they to you. 
and he turns the question, why does this happen, to the question that people should ask themselves, what does this mean to me? Responses of Jesus, I believe, do another thing, and we're going to see that here in our text in just a moment. We'll reread two through five. They signify an urgency. Let's read it again and see if you agree. Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. Now listen. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Remember the old song, Softly and Tenderly Jesus is Calling? This isn't one of those texts. Think of it this way. In neither case did the Galileans expect to get murdered or the tower falling on the 18 people did they expect to die. Jesus is tuned in to how vulnerable we are in life to death. And as we talked about last week, our recent catastrophes, whether they're hurricanes or fires or mass shootings that seem to be going on relentlessly virtually every day that you, it's almost just a turn off to watch the news. Our markers though for the fragile nature of life and the suddenness of death. And so this language of urgency is to lead you to repent. Repent or perish. That phrase is used two different times in our text here. Think about the word perish for just a minute. The primary meaning of that word perish is to die, to lose life, to come to an end, to be destroyed. Perish in the Bible is paralleled with consumed, to being eaten up, to go to nothing, to vanish, to be cut off, to be deceased, to fade away, to be utterly wasted. You getting the point? Perish. It's illustrated in Scripture by dung, by turning again to dust, by being consumed into smoke, by being melted like wax before a fire, by melting away, by a vine being turned, burned by fire, by breath leaving a body, by years being shortened, by a city being uninhabited, by bottles breaking. Perish. It's contrasted to prolonging days, to enduring, to having no end, to living, to eternal life, to everlasting life, to being renewed, to remaining. 
and while dying before God is clearly in view, I will also add that there is no indication that Jesus had in mind or is saying in this particular text, eternal torment or what we might call hell in mind. What he says is you will no longer be there. Now don't forget that within a generation of Jesus' words, there was a massive unimaginable destruction to Jerusalem that could not even have been comprehended by those who were listening. And the citizens of Jerusalem who had not repented and turned to Jesus perished in that destruction of the city by Rome within less than a generation. Possibly that is what Jesus is thinking about. But on the other hand, he very well may have been referencing our final judgment before God. Or the terrible judgment of Jerusalem and our final judgment before God. Regardless of why one will die, Repentance is the focus. I want you to see in the text that Jesus takes what is out there and makes it personal. He makes it urgent. He makes it straightforward. And I hope this morning by the work of the Holy Spirit that you will see them in the message of the Word, in the message from Jesus, He's not trying to beat us up. but to show us the way to life with God. Inviting us into a changed life because some of us need to make some changes. Repentance is an opportunity and it is a privilege and it is the sign of liberating growth of a human being and it is at the heart of the gospel of God and the good news of Jesus from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It just doesn't just pop up here in Luke 13 all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember the words, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. What? Repent and believe the good news. All right, with that stage set, he tells this story, this little parable that Melanie read. And in that parable, a man planted a fig tree in his garden, and he came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. Doesn't take a whole lot to figure out that we need to be looking at our lives and the fruit bearing of our own lives. And he kept looking, but he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to the gardener, I've waited three years. Hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. No, let's give it one more year. 
he argues. Remember John the Baptist's message? Way back in the beginning of Luke's gospel and now how we're seeing an alignment here again when John uses the word speaking to the crowds, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus is conveying this very same idea. The point is simple. God looks for fruit, for change, for growth. Okay. That's a lot to take in. I don't know how it's hitting you, how you're relating to it this morning, but I want and I believe you'll be able to get your arms around these final points. We'll make them as tangible as possible. In fact, I'm borrowing a, from a story that I wish I had time a little bit like Steve this morning. I can't, can't develop the entirety of the story, but it's from a story by Jennifer Greenberg as she comes to grips as a daughter having a father that abused her. Over a long period of time, and on account of that, she wrestled with how to view her father and how to look at that relationship and how to think about his repentance. And she put together some signs that she thought marked genuine repentance. straight from God's Word. I just want to share those this morning. We'll go through them quickly. The first one is this. A repentant person is appalled by their sin. Think Isaiah. Woe to me. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why appalled? Why appalled? Because like Isaiah, the repentant have seen the glory and the holiness of God. Number two, a repentant person makes amends. Makes. Left a letter there off of the slide. And what I want you to see here is that it is both vertical and horizontal. Think Zacchaeus, a thief, an oppressor of God's people, and when he makes amends, he says, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything I will pay back four times the amount and Jesus then confirmed today salvation has come to this house number three a repentant person accepts the consequences think about the thief on the cross Ask. Do you fear God? One says to the other. 
We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. Luke 23. And Jesus answered, assured him of his salvation. Truly, I say today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Number four, a person, repentant person, doesn't expect or demand forgiveness from others. Think Jacob. Often the offender says something like this, well, if you don't forgive me, God won't forgive you. Maybe true, but it's manipulative. In this case, the offender doesn't comprehend the gravity of what they've done. Number five. A repentant person feels the depth of the pain they've caused. If you find yourself minimizing or downplaying or excusing what you've done or always pointing out all your good works or all your assets as as if they outweigh or cancel out the bad, you've yet to come to grips with the fullness of repentance. The biblical view, Isaiah 64, your righteous acts are as filthy rags. Number six, a repentant person changes. You realize God needs to fix my heart. And so you work to change your behavior and your actions. And that might mean seeking out friends, that might mean a counselor, that might mean a church leader, that might mean the Holy Spirit to hold you accountable. You see, two times in our text it says repent. The ways that the used in our text, verse 3 and verse 5, are just slightly different. One seems to imply a one-time event we need to repent. The other repentance is an ongoing repentance. And I want you to hear that because many of us in this auditorium have repent and come to Christ, but we might minimize. I found myself doing that this week rationalizing, trivializing the need, the importance of that ongoing repentance as a lifestyle. Number seven, just two more, almost there. A repentant person grants the offended space. Don't feel entitled to trust or acceptance. Don't pressure the others, uh, pressure others to hurry up and get over it or move on. Rather, understand that there's distrust 
And so we have to acknowledge our grief and honor the boundaries that have been requested. Finally, number eight. A repentant person is awestruck by forgiveness. You see, if you feel entitled to forgiveness, maybe it's a little bit along the lines of what you were saying this morning, Steve. We get to this point of familiarity and we just can kind of check the box and count on God forgiving us. Then maybe that's not a very deep or even accurate understanding of the way the world works, the way God has created it. If you don't really value forgiveness, you're not entitled to it. And when Jacob receives Esau's forgiveness, he was so astounded that he just wept. And he said, to see face is like seeing the face of God for you have received me favorably Jacob understood that forgiveness is a divine miracle and it pictures the Messiah and it pictures mercy Thank you for being such good listeners. This has got to be one of the more difficult messages in a lot of ways that I've delivered for, for some time. And uh, I don't think, as I've processed it through the week myself, that it's, well, first of all, it's not very entertaining. But beyond that, it's, I think that we have within ourselves our fleshly nature, the Bible would call it, or our sinful nature, I'm going just a little bit off script here for a second, massive resistance to this kind of teaching. I just think we can stockpile a lot of rationalization and dismiss this, and we don't see it characterizing the life of other people around us so we somehow think that excuses it for us who are on this journey of faith it's only when we see it in light of God and of Christ that, that they're, they're, we're driven to this point of humility and, uh, and recognition I cannot do this on my own Lord help me In fact, as I, the Lord enlightened me with this through the course of this week and as I began to worship with this, this is top priority. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. Could repentance actually be your best friend and you didn't know it? It's urgent. It draws us in to the heart of God. So whatever questions you have for God, whatever whys about all the suffering in the world, Jesus invites us in this text to shift our view 
from why did this happen to what does this mean for me? I tried to summarize it in one line. I called it this, repent, be continuously changing, starting now to align with the mind of God. This is the way to true life.